It's the NPR Politics Podcast, live. We're coming to you from Studio One at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. with our roundup of the week's political news. We're going to do things a little differently this week. Four of us will start the show talking about the Republicans and what happened on their side of the race this week. Then we will hand it off to four more of your favorite nerds who will talk about the Democrats. And, of course, we will all be back at the end of the show with your questions and can't let it go. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I also cover the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And just a heads up, some live shows have those little applause signs that light up. We have something different. Whenever it's time for applause, you will hear this. Put your hands up. Please clap. Clap. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's... That's a crowd that knows something about politics. Yes. (laughs) That was, of course, Jeb Bush. And don't worry, Sam will be out for the Beyonce portion of our show later. So uh, (laughs) let's uh, let's get this party started and talk about the Republicans. Um, Donald Trump has essentially been away from the campaign trail um, ever since he became the de facto nominee. So Sarah, uh, what has the Donald been up to? Well, a few things. He's been meeting with some key Republican leaders, and just this week he released a list of 11 potential Supreme Court nominees. And who are those people, or what, are, what, what should we know about those people? Well, you know, overall it seems like they're pleasing to a lot of conservatives, and that was kind of the point of this, was to, to first of all show what a Trump administration might look like, and also to shore up the, the party base, the conservative part of the party that's very concerned about what kind of Supreme Court justices a President Trump might nominate. I mean, there were a lot of questions about Donald Trump and, you know, the uncertainty of what kind of justice he might nominate. He had mentioned, actually, at some point last year about his sister, who's a circuit judge in New York. So people, he actually said at one point, she'd be a phenomenal judge, a phenomenal justice. Uh, And that sent a lot of uh, conservatives, uh, you know, it made them a little nervous about what he might appoint. So as he's pivoting to this general election, he's trying to reassure those conservatives that uh, he's going to be pretty much in the main line of what they would want. And it's not just Supreme Court justices. He's also has Chris Christie vetting a, a potential cabinet. And the primary, we had, the convention hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> no, I mean, the fact is you've got uh, these candidates who the party has essentially rallied around him, knowing that that's what he's trying to do at this point, right? I mean, he's trying to, you know, win over some of those, quote unquote, never Trump, Trump folks who are suddenly not so never. Right. He doesn't have to knock out any more opponents at this point, but he does have to shore up the base because coming to, coming up to the general election, it'll be really important on both sides for the nominees to turn out their base. And I think that that is beginning to happen. Just before we kicked off this podcast, I saw that the New York Times CBS poll shows that about 80 percent of uh, voters, at least on the Republican side, seem to be suggesting that they want you know the party to coalesce behind Donald Trump. There is that old saying about Republicans falling in line and Democrats falling in love. Yeah, and, and the Republicans, yeah. at least some of them, are beginning to fall in line. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like an old primary line. I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it, you know, usually that's why you wind up seeing these kinds of primary uh, folks, uh, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Howard Dean or uh, as far back to Jesse other Jackson, errors. 1988. Sure. But Republicans have always had the sort of next in line guy. And that didn't happen this year. So, But they are now, not all of them, but there is 
something of a coalescing, and it seems like Donald Trump is trying to make that easier. Right. And I mean, there's still, we've heard a lot about the never Trump movement and, you know, calls by everyone from establishment Republicans to uh, ideological conservatives, evangelical conservatives who've said they'll never vote for Donald Trump. That still exists. But so far, any effort to find some alternative, a third party or some other option has really fallen flat. And just this week, we heard, you know, Mitt Romney, who was one of the sort of chief advocates of, a, of an alternative to Donald Trump, say he hadn't been able to come up with anybody. Yeah, it's like, uh, yes, maybe, maybe Trump. Maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe. maybe, right? But then I think the thing that was interesting this week we also saw is the Libertarian Party appointing Just its... going to say. Yep, the vice presidential <laughs> candidate is the former governor, former Republican governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. This is a guy that, you know, maybe isn't well known to a lot of people born probably in the last, what, at 20 least years. 20, 30 years. Yeah. But he does appeal, and I could see him appealing to some of these never-Trump folks like um, Mitt Romney. I mean, some of the people who had some concerns about where uh, Trump well, would take the party. Like, Think about the kinds of people that the never-Trump independent group were trying to recruit, uh, which is more like, quote-unquote, normal you know, Plausible. picking. Well, no, I mean, like, think, I, I think I mean normal, like for president, a former governor <laughs> of New Mexico and a former governor of Massachusetts or like the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, right? <laughs> I mean, they're trying to get Mark Cuban like that, you know. I think the libertarian effort is something to watch. I mean, many of you may remember that four years ago in the Republican Party, a lot of the energy was behind Ron Paul, who was a Republican, but a very libertarian-minded Republican. At the same time, though, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, Gary Johnson's announcement about uh, Bill Weld, you know, he is not an ideological conservative. He's pro-same-sex marriage and pro-abortion rights, as far as I understand, which is not going to necessarily help libertarians pull over some of those disaffected evangelicals and, and social conservatives <laughs> who are concerned about Trump. That's actually part of the reason why third party is so difficult because everyone talks about it like they're disaffected, but they can hardly agree on, you know, leveling the kinds of issues that they would rally around for precisely that kind of reason. You start to tick down those social policy thorny issues and it makes it really hard to get around somebody like that. And Sarah, you were in Iowa and, and you've done some reporting with social conservatives recently. Right. What, are they still never Trump? You know, uh, a lot of our colleagues have done a lot of reporting on the social conservatives and the evangelical vote. And, you know, there's been a lot made of the evangelical vote going for Donald Trump in relatively large numbers. But at the same time, if you slice it up and you look at regular churchgoers, not so much. And I think that still exists. I, I talked to two different, I went to two different churches, and this is anecdotal, but it is something I've heard from a lot of evangelical leaders, just that a lot of these conservative Christians are really struggling. They don't feel like Donald Trump, for a variety of reasons, aligns with, you know, their values. And, and the folks I talked to were, you know, some of them were saying, I will never vote for Trump. I'll vote for a third party. I'll write in Ted Cruz. I'll vote for no one at the top of the ticket. And others were saying, I really want to see him persuade me. And I think that's the big question is how many people are there that fall into this category and can Trump win them over? Tonight, and we're taping this on Thursday night, Donald Trump is holding a fundraiser. And I thought he wasn't going to have to do fundraisers. Maybe he doesn't for himself, but he's doing it for somebody else tonight, right? Yes. His good friend, Chris Christie. <laughs> Former and opponent. Who, uh, who happened to... In endorse him. Oh, yeah. Hmm. In kind of a big way. Right. So this is happening in New Jersey, and it is a fundraiser to retire Chris Christie's campaign debt, uh, which is interesting because... <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you added debt to that, because maybe it was like a retire Chris Christie's campaign. Uh, <laughs> that we will wait, we will wait and see. Yeah. But so retiring debt is like a relatively common 
thing. You have to. You actually can't terminate a campaign. It, it, you know, we talk about this definition of suspend. Like people always say, I suspend my campaign. Like you know, they might want to get back in. It's actually because, according to the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, you can't actually end your campaign. You can't terminate your campaign if you have outstanding debt. Hillary Clinton actually, because of having to pay uh, consultants in 2008, didn't retire her debt, I think, until 2014. And President Obama helped her with yeah. that along the way. Right. So, so technically, people who thought she would never get out, I guess never did until like much <laughs> later. <laughs> So this kind of thing is not unprecedented, but you know Donald Trump has made a lot of not needing to, to raise money, and here he is at a fundraiser, and it looks like we're going to see more of that, frankly. Yeah, so he has uh, named a fundraising chair. Uh, he signed a joint fundraising agreement with the Republican Party. Is As this what tend to do. Is this what you call a pivot? Sounds pretty traditional. Right. Or an and, untraditional guy. And, right? you know, a couple months ago, his staffers were hinting that this might happen come the general election, that his sort of MO for the nomination process, for the primary process, was not to, to fundraise, even though on the website there was a, you know, a button where you could, you could donate. Um, but it seems, you know, a little bit more of a more aggressive turn toward, toward traditional fundraising here. And, and he... Was he never fully self-funded? I mean, depending on how you define self Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, there was always, as Sarah was saying, the ability to donate to his organization, his campaign sort of structure if you wanted to. But, I mean, he also made a big push about the fact that he was self-funding a lot of his campaign. I think what will be interesting as we go on is whether or not he repays himself as he's now taking contributions from other people. He has the ability to pay himself back. Those were loans that he made, personal loans. And we should um, we should note yeah. that part of the paying himself back is because you see him flying around the country with the Trump plane. Uh, you know, that is considered travel that he's paying for. And he could use, I mean, it's about $36 million that uh, when you look at the, at the filings, there's a potential that once you start hitting donate, some of that money could be going to Trump himself. What I think will also be interesting to look for is how does his rhetoric about fundraising change? Because he has made a big point at almost every rally saying, I don't need money. I'm a billionaire. I'm self-funding. And this is something that, you know, as I've been on the campaign trail, I've heard from a lot of his supporters is they like that he's not, they, they say he's not beholden to anyone. So, you know, if he does start fundraising more, he's already signed these agreements we mentioned. I mean, I guess he could say... I'm so rich, they can't buy me, even if they give $400,000 to my joint fundraising committee. <laughs> right, it's relatively less than it would be to you or I. But, uh... <laughs> now, something to mention, uh, just today there's been news about an Egyptian air flight um, on its way from Paris to Cairo that has gone missing. Authorities don't yet know the cause, but um, Egyptian authorities have reportedly said that there's the possibility that it was a terrorist attack um, and that th that would be more was more likely than it having been uh, a technical failure. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have suggested it was an act of terrorism. Um, Domenico, uh, this is something that we could hear more about. Yeah, well, this is the kind of thing that anytime there's anything related to terrorism, people are always conscious of this. The Republican Party, ISIS and terrorism has ranked at the top of the list of concerns for Republicans since last year, at least, uh, since uh, probably early February of last year. Uh, and, you know, when you think about an election where, you know, you have a sitting president who's a Democrat and people are going to want to know what are you going to do about something like that. But the, the problem is you have these two candidates who are very different uh, than President Obama, but also different than the 
typical uh, Democrat-Republican divide when it comes to foreign policy. You know, Hillary Clinton's much more comfortable talking about foreign policy and foreign affairs. She's also in the do-something camp. Uh, she's somebody who's a little bit more hawkish than President Obama. She'll try to paint herself as uh, more centrist than Donald Trump, certainly. And Donald Trump, you know, very unpredictable. Obviously, he says that's part of his foreign policy platform is to be unpredictable. So literally, you don't know what he would do because he, he's telling you he won't tell you what it will be. And that's something that I think could cut both ways for him. I mean, he has been criticized, including by some leading Republicans with foreign policy expertise about, you know, what kind of a leader would he be in that respect? But at the same time, uh, you know, his supporters, of which there are obviously many, you know, find his approach to foreign policy really refreshing. They think that America's place in the world is slipping, and they think that Donald Trump is the one who could fix that. So, uh, you know, and of course, Hillary Clinton, with her record as Secretary of State, she has that going for her. But I, then again, there are a lot of people that are uh, concerned about her record of, as Secretary of State. She's so, very comfortable talking about this on the merits and wants that debate. Well, and if, if we go back over the past year, um, at least one or two of the times that the conventional wisdom was completely wrong about Donald Trump was when those terrorist attacks happened. His poll numbers went up. I mean, I would think that that was the moment where we saw Ben Carson, who had, you know, uh, the former neurosurgeon who had been doing very well in the polls. That was the moment after, I believe it was the Paris attacks, where he seemed to sort of flounder and not really show, I think, both the strength that voters wanted to see, but also sort of any policy concrete details. Well, Donald Trump may not have offered, I think, as concrete of policy details. That was around the time I think he came out with his temporary Muslim ban. It was around the time that he seemed, I think, to show the strength that some voters wanted. Now, again, I think the big in, question... In other words, using the kinds of words like bomb the expletive out of them was yes. when he started to ramp yes, up talking it about is. that And I think that ISIS. that yeah. resonated really well with a primary electorate. I think the big question mark now, and Domenico and I always talk about this, <laughs> is how different the general election electorate is than the primary electorate. And things that resonated just may not resonate as much now. Well, that is an incredibly awesome segue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because the next thing that uh, we are slated to discuss on this podcast is the general election and what a hypothetical Trump victory would look like, what his path is, the demographics, the battleground states, and, and really what has to happen for Mr. Trump to become Mr. President. Um, and Asma, I want to start with you and the demographics. So what is this difference between the primary electorate and the general electorate? Okay, so I think the, the big difference is in um, the racial makeup. Um, the Republican primary electorate is overwhelmingly white. Um, and I know that, you know, we've heard a lot about how Donald Trump's been able to pull sort of a diverse um, array of support during the Republican primary, but it's for the most part, with the exception, say, maybe of Florida and Texas, we really have a, an overwhelmingly white electorate. Um, that is far less the case in the general election. This is expected to be the most diverse electorate to date, uh, and it's a combination of Latino, African Americans, and Asian Americans, um, biracial folks as well. And so I think that, you know, the numbers are kind of all over the place, but let's say hypothetically, in a very sort of optimistic scenario for Donald Trump, 70, maybe 71% of the electorate is white. That means that there's an, about 30% of the electorate for which, you know, consistently votes Democrat, but also a portion of the electorate that he has to some degree alienated, given some of the rhetoric that he used during the, the primary season. Then amongst that 70% that remains, uh, a majority of them are women. A majority, w women just across the board, white women vote more than white men. And not just, I mean, women yeah. are a majority of the electorate and have been for yeah. some time. I mean, 53% of the electorate in 2012. Yep. I mean, 
this is, there's the potential that the gender gap in this election could be yeah. the biggest in history. But this Not election, to mention, as far as women go, that Donald Trump has historically low favorability yes. ratings with women. So it's worse than a standard Republican candidate would that's be in that the, respect. Exactly. That's a presumption, is that he's starting off with, say, unfavorable ratings in the polls around like 70%. 70% of women have an unfavorable opinion of him. Um, that's not a great place to start out. And I will say that I've spoken <laughs> to... That is an I don't mean that. So, I mean, I've spoken to Republican analysts, um, women analysts, who told me that, you know, they are very worried because it's very hard to win an election without a good chunk of support from women. And I mean, when any Republican starts right now with the way the country has changed demographically with a very narrow path to victory. The old maps of, you know, 2000, I'd seen analyses that if George W. Bush were able to get the same margins and with the same demographics because of how the electorate would change, he would have actually lost in, if he had took his 2004 margin yeah. to 2016 on or that, no, I'm actually just working on a demographic analysis of taking uh, essentially how the map looked, so basically matching up Romney and Obama, right, how those margins were compared to the current estimated demographics in this electorate. Um, I mean, looking at demographics alone, I was just telling Domenico, I mean, North Carolina would flip. Uh, not by a lot, but that's assuming that turnout levels are the same, everything else is the same. A state like North Carolina, President Obama lost in 2012, but looking just sheerly at the population demographics, it would be in Hillary Clinton's advantage. And so that's not reason, a great and, place yet. Yeah, and the reason we talk about demographics so heavily is because it and voter trends within the states are probably no better, um, you know, predictor of how the election will go uh, in the future. You know, everyone talks about polls, right? You're going to see this poll, that poll, uh, every single day, there's a new poll out, 45, 42, Donald Trump will tell you every single poll and where he is in every single one, as long as he's winning, right? But... <laughs> The thing that when I take a look at, we started our NPR battleground map uh, it, for May, and when I when you take it all into consideration, you I was able to get Hillary Clinton actually to 270, which is the number you need to win to be uh, the the president, without winning Colorado, Florida, Iowa, North Carolina, or Ohio. Wait, she wouldn't have to win any she, of those she, if she could get to she, 270. Donald Trump could win. Florida and Ohio, Iowa, Colorado, North Carolina, and she, and she would still win. Of course, okay. Trump's argument is that he's going to upend all, oops, all of that and you know win places like New York. But. So he's not going to win New York. I'll just make that. <laughs> I mean, so I will say. I'll make that. Are, are you? I did the demographics on New York today. I did the demographics yeah. on New York. The analysis would show. I mean, it is the largest margin of any. I mean, it's it would. Theoretically, looking at just demographics, a, a generic Democratic candidate would have like a 60% win in that so, state. So, Domenico, yeah, I mean, are you willing to put a wager on this, eat a shoe, eat a piece of paper? I'll eat a piece of pizza <laughs> from New York. I don't think anybody would have to twist your arm to All right, do that. I'll eat a slice of DC pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Right, oh, wait, I mean, I'm sorry. They don't make slices. He's a New Yorker. Uh, no slices, no pineapple. Jumbo slice there? and Adams Morgan <laughs> tell me that's not, you know, come on. But, Domenico, I was going to say, the big, like, question mark to me still is, like, yes, demographics, they tell us a lot, but they also leave open the big question to me, which is that will Hillary Clinton be able to get, assuming she is, you know, the nominee for the Democratic Party, will she be able to get the turnout levels that Barack Obama had? Would she be able to actually galvanize the support levels? Because so, that's kind of the big question mark to Right, me. so this is the real key. All right, first, when you look at it, it really is about 
the industrial Midwest and places where trade will be the main message, right? I mean, you think about states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, all right? Those are four key battleground states. And you might notice that only Ohio is on, uh, did I say, is in the pure toss-up column at this point. Pennsylvania has gone Democratic for years and may wind up being in the toss-up column uh, before this is said and done because of the trend in Pennsylvania. Uh, but places like Wisconsin and Michigan, are, they're tougher demographically for someone like Donald Trump. But if he were to win those, there is a path. It's a narrow path, uh, and that's where you're going to hear him make those points about, you know, even though George H.W. Bush w was the person who negotiated NAFTA, Bill Clinton signed NAFTA, and the Clintons have been tagged with being responsible for jobs losses, uh, especially in the Midwest. And that is the, that is the message that Donald Trump is going to principally run on. I mean, you can tell issues-wise that's where he's going to go. Uh, and if he's able to sweep through there, there's his path. There's his chance. I, there's also another side of that, right? I mean, because you'd have to push the margin for white men up pretty darn high to win in a place like that. Mitt Romney won 62% of white men in 2012. That's a lot, right? I mean, it's hard to get a lot higher than that. And then when you think about Latinos, Latinos, Mitt Romney with his, you know, terrible self-deport policy won only 27% of Latinos. Well, self-deport looks like a walk in the park. I, I was, yeah. <laughs> I sarcastically say, quote, terrible, because, I mean, compare that to Donald Trump's announcement speech, which was certainly a whole lot different than that. Which was deeply offensive to... Uh, a lot of Latinos, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So, but you look at then states like Florida even, right, where coming on demographically, Florida, you probably put a finger on the scale for Democrats because of how the Latino vote has shifted even since 2016, right? Yeah, I, I was just looking. I mean, it's gone up by about like 2% is what it looks like in Florida. Um, 2%, you may not think that sounds huge, but in a state like Florida, that is a sizable chunk of the population. Now, the, the thing that's important, though, is that Hillary Clinton has said what? That I'm not a natural candidate. Yeah. I'm not a natural candidate like my husband or Barack Obama. It's going to be up to her team to not just run against Trump. And it's amazing to me that this is, election has become already a referendum on Donald Trump rather than about the person who's trying to succeed, Barack Obama, almost you know, practically you a, third a third term. term. And they're going to have to try to make a pivot to figure out what does a Hillary Clinton future look like that's positive and not just anti-Trump. I want to toss out one other wrinkle in the, in the Donald Trump uh, map and and path to the nomination. He has talked a lot about the idea that he's been expanding the electorate, that he's bringing all these people to the polls in the Republican primary, and that he is just going to have way more people voting for him than have ever voted before. Right. This has become one of his talking points along with the poll numbers is to say, look at these record turnout numbers. And that's true. But... There it's was, not the whole story. Yeah, and there was this Politico analysis this week that said that he may not actually be expanding the electorate. No, I mean, it said that, look, there's a bucket of people who vote in a general election. And what he was trying to say is, I brought in all these people outside the bucket. There's a whole new bucket. There's all these folks who stayed home for a long time. They were disaffected with politics. They hate it, right? Well, what that analysis found is actually they're new to primaries, but they're not new to voting. They are reliable Republican general election voters. And that's important because what that tells me is show me the millions of Obama Trump voters and I'll show you Donald Trump's path to the presidency. Because otherwise you need to bring in a whole lot of people outside of that realm, white men in some of these states that he wants to win in, to be able to show what that path is. 
All right, let's end it here. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and bring in our second team who will talk about the Democrats. Second team, I'm wow. sorry. The B well, team. she didn't call you. Hey, look. Second you know in order, happens. but first in our hearts, you know Sam. What, you, you know what happens when you call someone the JV team? Oh. Just saying, sometimes. They rise up and become ISIS. Oh. Um, oh <laughs> on that note. I was trying to be subtle about and it. And scene. Uh, and we will all be back for audience questions and can't take and and can't, can't let it go. Can't take anymore. Can't take anymore. <laughs> We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, y'all. We're back on the NPR Politics Podcast Live. We're going to talk about what the Democrats have been up to this week, including that mess of a Nevada state convention. We'll also talk about whether the Obama coalition will actually outlive Obama's presidency. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. All right. Before we start, we got to take a little time just to acknowledge the grand professor of this operation, Ron Elving, um, who is truly the OG of politics and podcasting here at NPR. Um, He's been doing this since 2007. Uh, He had a podcast that was around long before this one, and he is amazing. Uh, We love you, Ron. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And in your honor, Ron, we have brought out tonight Ron Yada. This is a pinata that makes constant appearances in our Facebook Live videos. One of the videos we asked folks to name it, they named it Ron Yada. It is here with us tonight. Yeah. All right. Please so. don't attempt to feed Ron Yada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's been almost a week, and people are still talking about this Nevada Democratic Convention. Nevada. I say Nevada. Like bad. Nevada. 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 Okay. Still talking about this Nevada Democratic Convention, and I feel like I still don't get what actually happened there. I actually was up this morning reading about it and watching all the videos for two hours. I'm still super confused. Scott, you kind of know more than me, perhaps, I hope. Well, Sam, what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas. (laughs) He did that during dress rehearsal, and I was like, don't do it tonight, but he still did it. (laughs) It's been great, everybody. I'll see myself out. See you later. (laughs) Well, this gave us all of the charged emotions, arcane rules, high-stakes parliamentary procedure, and math that we were hoping to get in Cleveland, and instead we got in in Nevada. This was uh, Hillary Clinton won the Nevada caucuses, and as we learned over and over again throughout the primary and caucus process, winning the caucus does not necessarily give you that set amount of delegates at the convention. So there were county conventions in between. Bernie Sanders' campaign did very well at at accumulating support on the county level. So Clinton supporters, Sanders supporters all came to the uh, convention, which was at the Paris Hotel and Casino on the Vegas Strip. 
And this was basically a fight in the end over a handful, like two delegates. Two to five, or just two, right? Two. Okay. That's right. And the big uh, moment that got everybody upset and started this all off was a voice vote over the, uh, the credentials report, basically acknowledging how many delegates from each side were there. It was a voice vote. The Sanders people felt like they clearly won that voice vote. The chair ruled for Clinton's side. And but the count from the conventions found that Clinton had more people there, right? That's right. Yeah. And then so there also were some questions about 64 Sanders delegates that were not able to take part because they didn't have the proper documentation. Either they weren't actually Democrats or their addresses didn't check out or something. A great, and, a great many of the 64 yes. were not actually there. Something didn't show up. That too. was a problem. Okay. And one of the reasons... That's, that's problematic. One of the reasons, of course, many of them didn't show up was because they had not filed their registration papers by May 1st. And this has been an irritant throughout the entire process because there are always a lot of rules, especially in the states where people have to show up at a particular time and have certain documents. And if they don't, they are excluded. Uh, one of the most important ones is that many states require that you actually be a member of one of the two parties to vote in a primary. That if you're an independent, you can't vote in a primary. So, for example, if you live here in the District of Columbia and you want to vote in a meaningful, well, any kind of a meaningful way, <laughs> you, you have the choice of joining the Democratic Party or at least listing yourself as a Democrat or waiting until November to feel very lonely. Um, it, it, it is similar in states that have much more of a balance between the parties, and so many people prefer not to identify with either of the parties, and the more you learn about them, the easier it is to understand that. So a lot of people just don't really want to be an officially a Democrat or a Republican, and they're shocked oftentimes to find when it comes to a primary, they're just not allowed to participate, and some of that also had to do with why a lot of those people were not allowed to participate. I mean, obviously the rules of the nominating process and the convention process are very complicated. And while I think the Sanders campaign has a very fair point that people that want to engage in this process find a hard time knowing how to play by the rules. You know, that said, you're at a convention that came out of a caucus, which unto itself is a very... Uh, not that fair. Not that fair of a process. Undemocratic, little d process. And then... It created this scene that was a rather ugly scene. I watched all the videos. Like, I, I went down this hole of crazy videos. Yeah. And, like, so there's this big debate over whether or not the video showed violence and fighting between the people. And then there was this big argument over, like, did someone throw a chair mm -hmm. or did someone just brandish a chair? <laughs> and I'm like, if you're having that argument... It's when the chair's in the air, it's yeah. not a good place right? to be, right? So we, we end up with chaos. You know, security tries to stay late because it keeps going, going, going. They shut the thing down. And let's be clear. If the Sanders campaign had been successful, if they had won this credentials report, if this whole night had played out to their advantage, it would have been a difference of three to maybe four delegates. So the bottom line, even if he had, if this gambit had worked, again, it doesn't change the reality we're living in, that Hillary Clinton is mathematically certain at this point, yeah, unless, almost yeah, mathematically at this point, she's very likely to be the nominee. Okay. And that's the unless big... he starts getting these superdelegates to flip, which we can talk about later. And that's the big picture frustration for Bernie Sanders' campaign and his supporters, because they see him doing so well, winning so many states, especially lately, taking Indiana, taking West Virginia, taking Oregon, almost beating Clinton in, in Kentucky as well. And yet, because of uh, what has happened over the course of the campaign, Hillary Clinton is, is far ahead of him, 
I've got my numbers here because got Domenico is not on stage and we need somebody with the numbers. I'm so it's 274 numbers. pledge delegates is the lead that Hillary Clinton has over Bernie Sanders at this point. She's uh, about 90 delegates away from, from clinching the nomination or at least getting the delegates she would need to have the majority she would need in the convention. So there's some frustration from Sanders, people saying we're doing well, we feel like we're closing the gap, and yet everybody's talking about this like this is over. And there is a concept that is abroad in the land that all of this amounts to the rigging of the entire process so that it has never been fair from the get-go and that there was never a legitimate chance for someone who has shown a great deal of voter appeal. He has more votes in the process up to now than Donald Trump has. But still a few million less than Hillary Clinton. Nearly three million fewer than Hillary Clinton. So you're making the argument not that it is a strictly democratic distinction that you're making, because after all, she does have more votes and more pledged delegates, but that the system that enabled her to get ahead was somehow, you know, bogus from the start. And I mean, like, if you're a Sanders supporter and you look at some of the rules around these states and these parties and these caucuses and conventions, they are crazy. They don't make any sense. It doesn't feel democratic. And you can see why someone would be angry about this. Except that usually you're talking there about caucus states. Yeah. And the irony is that most, well, Bernie Sanders has done far better in caucus states than he has in the big old ugly normal primaries where everyone who's a registered Democrat can vote. And in some cases, such as Wisconsin, where he did do well, uh, independents are allowed to vote as well. It has not been a straight line, but the caucus is where Bernie Sanders has gotten most of his delegates. Don't you also find, too, though, that candidates only really seem to complain about the process and the rules when they're not winning? I mean... Trump well, yeah. Trump had a very similar um, complaint in the Republican primary. But he was like when, usually always winning, though. But when there, there was this moment where they're going to try and take it from oh, him, and he yeah. started complaining about the caucuses and how unfair they were, and they were being gamed, and then he locked up the nomination, and we haven't heard yeah. a thing about the unfair process since. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Wait till the fall. Yeah, I'm scared. Yeah. And I think just on the point of fairness, I think it is worth pointing out that the path that Bernie Sanders' campaign has laid out for him to emerge with the nomination is for him to go into the convention. Hillary Clinton would have had more popular votes, would have more uh, pledged delegates. And through the superdelegates, the superdelegates that the Sanders campaign has been so frustrated with their existence over the course of this whole campaign, getting them to flip and override the primary and caucus process so that he emerges as the nominee. Yeah. Well, and this gets to, my, uh, to this other conversation about the messaging from Team Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the fracas at the Paris Las Vegas this weekend, lots of folks are saying, You could have made like a boxing joke there. Uh, did I? No, you could have. There was like a moment, you know, fighting, Vegas Strip, you know. Anyway, sorry. Cool. <laughs> cool story. Ding. Cool story, What bro? round are we in? What round are um, we in, Scott? So, after Saturday, sorry. everyone's like, Bernie, shut this down, right? Mm-hmm. And so Bernie issues a statement where he's basically like, uh, yeah, 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 I condemn violence, but y'all ain't right. And it was basically not the kind of stifling of this activity that others would want what should we make of that? I've been seeing from Team Sanders a little bit of mixed messaging. For a while, they were going to pivot to issues as they knew that Clinton was going to win this, but then they were going to stay in and fight, and now they want superdelegates. Like, is this part of a larger issue of the Sanders camp bopping to and fro? They're struggling to coordinate their message in a very difficult phase of an extraordinary and, in some respects, historic yeah. campaign. They know the numbers as well as anyone else better. 
but they can see a path that they can describe to an audience. And there and is still a mathematical rallies. Yes, path. yes. If if, uh, if Bernie Sanders wins every vote in California on June seventh, uh, <laughs> then he will get four hundred and some delegates. Uh, in, in greater likelihood, they will split the state. They'll both be somewhere around half. And by getting 200 and some delegates, she will probably put herself over a majority of the pledged delegates, not even touching the superdelegates, especially when you count in New Jersey and New Mexico voting the same day. So they know the numbers. But remember, you have millions of supporters and enthusiasts who have really poured their hearts and souls into this campaign. And they've given money in small amounts, and they have invested this campaign with their own inspired hope yes. that somehow politics can be better. You don't, you don't want to just sort of pull the plug one day and say, oh, we did the math, we're going to quit. But what I think was so interesting about what happened in Nevada, too, is that Democrats in the Democratic Party looked at that and said, this cannot be a preview of Philadelphia. And you saw uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, it was his home state, he largely runs the Democratic Party in his state. Senators like Barbara Boxer, who were there in the room, other senators on the Hill that I cover were coming out and saying, you know, Sanders has to say something, he has to calm this down, he has to have a unifying message, because he's going to have a lot of delegates in Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, and, and, you know, in 2008, if Hillary Clinton wanted to have created a scene against Barack Obama, she could have done it. I mean, she, she, chose, she chose a different path. And I think this was a week where we saw more prominent Democrats in the party saying, you know, we're so excited, Bernie, that you've brought these people to the party, but you need to get on the path. There is a close analogy here. And by the way, this is my journalist emeritus function. This is what I do here. Uh, 1988, it was decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I was there. And... <laughs> And at that convention, Jesse Jackson had a number of delegates, and there was a great deal of anxiety about what Jesse Jackson might do. And of course, there you had the issue of race. Will Jesse Jackson take his delegates and say, this is a, a racist travesty, and march out, in which case the chance of the Democrats winning in November would be pretty much gone. Uh, he didn't. The big question of what does Jesse want turned out to be he wants to be part of the party and make it stronger. They turned over one whole night of the convention to Jesse Jackson and his delegates and supporters and other delegates and even many members of the media couldn't get in the hall. Wait, what? No, seriously. They kept Jesse a lot night. of the other delegates. Uh, it was Jesse night. How it was, was it? It was totally Jesse night. Was it good? It was... <laughs> <laughs> Can I resist saying it was the best night of the convention okay. by far? All right. It didn't have the electrical personality and dynamism of Michael Dukakis. <laughs> which was on Thursday night. Uh, the music also was, I would say, superior. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like the theme that I'm seeing throughout this whole last week of Democratic brouhaha drama is this idea of fairness. And like these primaries aren't fair. These caucuses aren't fair. This process is not fair. And I hear those critiques and they feel valid to me. But I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about with Beth and others, like, what parties actually are. And parties aren't fair. The fair part of democracy happens in November when everyone gets to vote in the election. But parties themselves are private clubs. I think of them like fraternities. When I was in college, I wanted to pledge a frat, Alpha Phi Alpha. I went to the little thing to talk about how to do it. They were like, this will cost you $1,000 and we might haze you. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I didn't get in the club. But I knew the rules, and I was like, okay, it's not for me, right? But, so 
parties and fraternities and clubs and groups get to set their own rules. And if they have no rules, it's no longer a fraternity. It's a block party. And everyone, it's, that's not, you can't, like, right? But I think I, there's a good counter. <laughs> I'm sorry about your pledging experience. I, <laughs> I saved a thousand dollars. I think there's a good counter argument to that, though, in that, that voting and electing your representatives is such a fundamental part of who we are and what we do. And so many people live in states and cities like Washington, D.C., like extremely blue states like California or red states like Texas, where oftentimes the primary is the determining factor in who your senator, yes. who your governor is going to be. And to say, I'm sorry, it's a private club, that does rub a lot of people the wrong way. And it just seems fundamentally unfair. And but, I think that's a good... I th- I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think that's why a lot of people emotionally react to it wrong, and, say, <laughs> say, and say absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, I, it's also interesting because both parties are having this trouble, right? Is that more and more voters, particularly younger voters don't register with a political party formally. They don't register as a Republican. They don't register as a Democrat. They like to say they're an independent. But most independents vote the same way. So a lot of independent voters have voted Democratic or voted Republican. They just don't want to wear the jersey formally. So when they show up to vote at a primary, they're like, well, I should get to vote in this, but because they haven't filled out the paperwork. And that is where I think you can understand a lot of people start to feel that something's rigged against them or it's not fair, but that is... A long time, not that long ago, more people were registered. They registered Republican or Democrat, and primaries were closed to make sure people didn't meddle to try yes. and you know to try yeah. and screw with somebody else's well, club. And it's like if you're a party, if you're the head of the frat, you're trying to do well. Frats don't keep order, but some clubs want right. to keep order, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to know Animal what's House. going on. <laughs> they want to they want to have some semblance of knowing what in the world is happening, and if. If they don't have any kind of rules in place, it's hard. And, and what's weird with our party system is that every state party gets to set their own rules for their own system. So it's even more confusing. Yeah. But now Team Bernie is saying part of their strategy now is to get to the convention to argue for changes to these crazy rules. Uh, what is the possibility of that happening and what would that change look like? My guess is that this is the year a serious discussion of superdelegates will take place again, and the number of superdelegates will be greatly reduced. The members of the Democratic National Committee will probably no longer be automatic superdelegates. It's also possible that in a bid to make happier many of the Sanders supporters, they will simply eliminate superdelegates. But But when have they mattered? They're not going to matter this time, most likely. No, but, but, but look, you're looking for something that you can give as a, and trophy's a bad word, a meaningful gesture to the people who have supported Bernie Sanders out of an abundance of democratic spirit. And you want to say to them, you are welcome here. Let me give two reasons why you should do that. One is because you want to win in November. And the other one, I think, is that you want to win in November. (laughs) And I believe, as, as Domenico mentioned a moment ago, I believe that this is much of the reason why Hillary Clinton is showing so badly against Donald Trump in some of these matchups, which are hypothetical and don't cost anything, is because some people who are now Bernie Sanders supporters know that his best argument at this juncture to the superdelegates is that he's running stronger against Trump in November, which he is. Now, to caveat, though, lots of folks say that is because there has not been too much oppo work done on him yet. That's another argument. That but is another argument on. which Hillary's people will make in time. Yes. But... Just straight up, there are certain people who are talking to pollsters right now remembering the fact that they're Bernie Sanders supporters and being very hostile towards Hillary Clinton. They may feel differently by the time we get to November. We shall see. But that is another part of what has to be thought about by the Clinton folks and the Democratic Party folks as they decide how much to give up 
at that convention. And one big thing you could give up would be the concept of superdelegates. Yeah. So do we end up, which no one would have ever expected six months ago, with a Democratic convention that is high drama? I don't expect it to be, to be anything like what we saw in Nevada last weekend. I don't expect that the people who go as Sanders delegates, either from Nevada or any other state, are going to have much in common with the people who got out of control on Saturday night at the Paris Hotel or who have been harassing the Democratic State Party chair and other people uh, online since or with death threats on the telephone. That is not going to be typical behavior. And it's not going to be typical behavior. It hasn't been in any of the other caucus states where they've had these processes. And there's really no reason to expect that to generalize or be characteristic of the Sanders delegates who get to Philadelphia. But there may be some contentious moments. I expect the platform committee to be highly contentious and that there will be an effort there to Sandersize the platform and uh, you know, support. You're okay with that? I'm cool with You're that. You're okay with that. <laughs> I expect it to be somewhat contentious. Okay. And I think that uh, the we're taking this to the convention line can, can always very quickly shift after results. I mean, just look at Ted Cruz, who was taking this through California, who was going to Cleveland. He loses Indiana. That's it. I think a lot of people expect... If Clinton does do well, especially in those June 7th primaries, that, um, that, that Bernie Sanders could reassess once the voting is over and ha you suddenly have a much more unified Democratic cool. Party. We have like eight and a half minutes to do topic B, so we're going to get to this. Um, all right. In the first part of the show, we talked about the Trump coalition. Let us talk about another coalition that could decide the general, and that is the Obama coalition. Before we get into it, what do we mean by that, Ron? We mean the people who voted for Obama, essentially. But the groups, when you look at, when you talk about a coalition, you usually are thinking about distinct voting blocks and groups that fell into line for a particular candidate or in a particular set of circumstances. Uh, 2008 was an extraordinary set of circumstances. And we saw then and in 2012 a coming together of minority voters we had never seen before. So that we got to 26% of the total vote being cast by people of color in 2008. And then to 28% in 2012. And by straight line projection, which has every, demogra every demographic reason to continue, they will make up 30% of the population. Uh, Ozma has already spoken about this earlier. And that means that if you get an Obama like share of that vote, which is in excess of 80%. I'm not sure Hillary Clinton could drive that herself. I'm pretty sure she could not. But I think Donald Trump will help drive a lot of it as well. So if you get 80-some percent of that 30%, you are almost halfway to being elected president of the United States in the popular vote before you've touched the first white vote. And Obama may just campaign for Hillary Clinton, should she be the nominee. And I would put some money right on too. that. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting is in the landscape now that we're in is that Barack Obama is incredibly popular right now. Uh, at this rate, he'll probably have like a historically high popular rating on election day. And that makes it a lot easier for him to go out on the campaign trail. This is different than the last president that was leaving, which was George Bush in 2008, who was one of the most unpopular figures in the country, did not even show up at the Republican convention that year, was not welcome on the campaign trail. And this is different. You can see Barack Obama, particularly uh, in Ohio and Philadelphia and Columbus and cities where he campaigned before, he's going to be a really welcome presence. And not just Barack Obama. Michelle Obama is an incredibly oh, popular yeah. surrogate on the campaign trail. Yes. And Bill Clinton is still Sasha a very popular, Malia, no. popular yeah. surrogate on the campaign trail. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Malia. Maybe that's the gap year. What one other element of the Obama coalition that's that's highly important and critical for this fall, younger voters. 
people under 30. As we used to talk about young people not really being all that interested in getting around to voting until they were a little bit older, whereas people over 65, well, a lot of the polling places are literally in retirement homes, and that <laughs> is the truth. And, and a lot of other older people go by the polling place every Tuesday just in case there might be an election going on. But that, that, is, that is probably... <laughs> God bless you, Ron. That, but isn't that. that, I think that's the part of the coalition that's the question mark, right? That is is, the, is the millennial vote, the under 35 vote that has been a lot of the driving force behind Bernie Sanders? And are these the voters that are going to, you know, come under the umbrella if, when Bernie, if Bernie Sanders, when Bernie Sanders is well, not the yeah. nominee? So it's like, it, go ahead. I think a lot of Democratic leaders are really confident that Donald Trump will create that unity. Uh, I did a story in Pennsylvania last week, and I talked to... Uh, former Democratic Governor Ed Rendell, who uh, always gives a colorful quote. He gave a very colorful quote and had to apologize to the Washington Post this week. But um, talking, talking to us, uh, he said that um, there's an old quote that hate and fear are more powerful emotions than love when it comes to motivating people. And they feel like uh, the idea of a president, Donald Trump, will get younger voters, will get Bernie voters, will get lots of Democrats to show up and vote in November. Even if the Bernie or Busters coalesce around Clinton as a nominee, are they Democrats after this election? Are, are they so disaffected by this process and this system? Like, what is the future for a Bernie or Buster? If a, okay. you, I would say if a, if a Bernie or Buster is voting for a Democrat in the election, they're more likely to become a Democrat. If they vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, if they don't vote, then that is that is the question mark. Is that do they does does this libertarian movement sort of draw where the the people that don't want to vote for Trump and the don't, people that don't want to go to Bernie? Does he become a viable? I want to show up and vote because I I want to be the kind of person that votes, but I can't vote for either these either yeah. of these two candidates. Uh, and I, but I don't know. I would say that it is remarkable to me, and I'm still kind of surprised at how much the Republican Party does seem to be aligning behind Donald Trump. I thought the fight would be a little bit more dramatic, and they're all kind of getting into line. So I know we can't, you know, the parties aren't apples to apples, but it, it seems unlikely to me that in the end, Democrats won't similarly line up behind someone who is, you know, actually a very well-known and popular figure in the party. You know, one interesting thing about this conversation right now, and I feel like this has been happening nationally too, we spent about 25 of these 27 minutes talking about Bernie Sanders and not Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's been having a hard time just getting attention, it seems. <laughs> Either we're talking about Trump or we're talking about Bernie or we're talking about Bernie or Busters. What does she need to do, should she be the nominee, to be able to control some narrative? Well, um, one, I, I've read a bunch of interesting articles in the last few weeks arguing that a focus on Donald Trump might not necessarily be the worst thing for a candidate, Hillary Clinton. Okay. I mean, her party has been in power for eight years now. Winning three presidential elections in a row is a very rare thing to happen. And there's an argument now that, that this election has shifted from a referendum on Democratic uh, presidents and the Barack Obama administration to a referendum on whether or not Donald Trump can and should be president. And that is, uh, that is an area that I think a lot of Democrats feel like they have much more of an edge just because of historic trends of, of voters getting a little itchy and, and wary after, after eight years with one party in charge. Yeah. She also needs to find her authentic place. And that has been a struggle for Where her. Where is it? I can't tell you. I have no idea. Although, okay. let me just say, I think it's somewhere far from a campaign trail. Well, I mean, like you see her in these smaller events and these smaller venues talking with folks one-on-one, face-to-face. She does quite well. She I, is not a Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, big stadium candidate. 
that is quite true, and that is a that is a fair comparison. I thought during the two thousand eight campaign that she better she had the better of him in their one on one debates when they were both seeking the nomination. But then she would go out on a big stage and have a very hard time connecting with a crowd of any size, really. And and she has had, it seems to me, this last past year, not much more luck in being herself, being consistently that same self, and and selling it, you know? Because Look, what passes, what's the old joke Dan Shore, who was one of our distinguished colleagues here for many years, used to say that the most important thing in politics was sincerity. Once you can fake that, the rest is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> I am aware that some of the politicians who seem warmest and most sincere, you know, might very well be the biggest uh, yeah. frauds, but you still need to make an effort to show people something they can relate to on a personal level. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with some of your questions and Can't Let It Go. Please clap. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here, sound-checking in Studio One at NPR headquarters before the NPR Politics live show. I want to take a second to let you guys know that our friends at NPR's Invisibilia are back with season two of their podcast on June 17th. This season, they are going to some really interesting places. A prison, an oil rig, a McDonald's in Russia, a beach in New Jersey, all to explore the hidden forces that shape us and our institutions, our work, families, and governments. You can catch up on season one of Invisibilia anytime and listen to the season two preview starting May 20th, wherever you get your podcasts and on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. We're back on the NPR Politics Podcast Live. All right, we're going to answer some questions from you guys here in the audience. As you walked in, we asked you to write down any questions you had, and we picked a few right here. I have a list of names. We're going to have you guys talk about your questions with us. Uh, first one comes from Anya here in D.C. She has a question about likability. Hi, Anya. Where are you? Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming. We have a mic for you. Hi, guys. Um, my question is, do you guys think that likability politics will end up affecting actually how people vote? It's pretty clearly affecting media coverage of the campaign. It's affecting the campaign. People talk a lot about, you know, how much people love Donald Trump, hate Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, pretty much every candidate. But Will it actually impact how people act on election day? Who wants this? Um, well, there's only one one thing that I always just say is elections are choices. I mean, and you know, it may very well wind up being a hold your nose election um, where you know people may feel disaffected one way or another and vote for the the person who they feel like is not the worst option. Um, but you know. I, I think likability is can be an important thing, but I think that we're we've been in such an echo chamber media culture. You know, if you want a headline or you want news, you want analysis that you agree with, you can find it anywhere. And if someone's telling you that you, what you believe is real, and then you see a whole bunch of other stuff that people say is wrong, you hate all of those people, right? Like it's it's like it's like that kind of bubbles. The bubbles we live in now. Are, are I think have affected people's likability ratings, um, you know, regardless of the of the factors individually between these two candidates. And we should say that these two candidates are the two least likable candidates. I mean, like by by so polling. So since polling yeah. since polling began, they are the least liked. Uh, they have the highest 
uh, strong, strongly unfavorable ratings in history. Go run. Just one thing about likability. We used to talk a lot about the have a beer index. Whom would you rather have a beer with, this candidate or that candidate? Consider the two candidates we're contemplating for November. Would you rather have a beer with Hillary Clinton? It's a little hard to imagine that scenario. I imagine she drinks something, maybe not beer. <laughs> She would like drink vodka with John McCain on Senate. She's trips, actually a she's drinker. Actually, like she, when she travels, she drinks. And meanwhile, like a supercut of probably okay. like tossing. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Donald Trump. All right, Donald I, Trump doesn't actually drink. Trump That's doesn't right. drink. As he said, as he said the other day, he has never had a glass of alcohol. Abraham from California. Where is Abraham? Where in California? I used to live in LA. It's a great place to be. Um, you have a question about interactions with voters. Tell us your question. Yes. So you guys have had fantastic coverage throughout the entire cycle. And one of the best parts of it is getting to hear the stories. You know, you're at the rallies, you're talking to real voters, you're hearing about those experiences. And I'd love to hear, you know, from some of you on what were some of the most interesting or surprising things you've heard from voters this cycle? I, uh, I was just in Pennsylvania this week. I was at a uh, baseball game in Scranton talking to uh, voters because in that area, Donald Trump had won 77% of, of one of the nearby counties. He won every single county in Pennsylvania, but that's where he did best. And I went in, and it wasn't a campaign event, so you're always kind of apprehensive about will people want to talk about politics. Uh, and, and I just started talking to people, and the excitement about Donald Trump from the people I talked to was so evident that people would overhear, Trump, oh, are you talking about Trump? I love Trump. And, and just like... Person after person was talking, but there was one guy I was chatting with who was talking about how much he loves Donald Trump. He initially came up and like showed me a picture, a selfie he had gotten with Trump at the rally. And then he said, like, you know, Clinton, I love her. I love her so much. And, and it turns out that he had volunteered hours and hours for Hillary Clinton in 2008. He was a huge Hillary Clinton supporter, but uh, in between then and now, he had shifted his allegiances, and now he's volunteering hours and hours for Donald Trump. And I can't imagine there are that many people in the entire country who could say that. But I was talking to this guy who loved Hillary Clinton, who's going to vote for Donald Trump, who's volunteered and donated to Donald Trump, and he loves Clinton so much that he, he, he was like, you know, Benghazi, that's not even her fault. I have no problems with Benghazi. It was just like an amazing conversation with someone who doesn't fit into any single box that, that we think in a big picture. Yeah. Dan? Um, my favorite, I guess, my favorite people that I met, I was doing something about a, a mock caucus in Iowa because... People who are very serious have mock caucuses where they get together and they practice their caucus speeches and they like shuttle to different sides of the room, the whole thing. And I met this couple who had moved to Iowa from Hawaii, not because of jobs, but to caucus. No, yeah. it wasn't. It definitely wasn't for the weather. They they just they wanted they wanted to be in. They had been sailing around the world and then lived live in Hawaii and they just like wanted to matter political like they wanted their vote to count they wanted to engage in like the most american democratic voting thingy ever um and so they moved to iowa all right that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> pat from pennsylvania has a question about the catholic vote where is pat hi pat hey thank you um, so my question about the Catholic vote kind of stems in how it's going to go. So the bishops issued a document called Forming Consciousness for Faithful Citizenship, and half the issues they talk about are more or less democratic issues, immigration, finance reform, 
climate change, and the other half are social conservative issues, marriage, abortion, et cetera. So given this kind of crazy uh, year, how do you see that playing out? Um, and your opinions on that. I can speak a bit to the demographics of how it'll play out. I don't know actually how it will play out in reality. But um, so demographically, the growth in the Catholic Church, I'm sure many folks probably know this, has come a lot from Latinos. And it's also come in urban centers. And so both of those things indicate that it would be a more democratic-leaning... I mean, it, it has historically... I mean, Catholics have been quite democratic-leaning. But I think as we're seeing increased growth among Hispanics, and given some of the rhetoric that we've heard on the Republican side around Hispanics, I think that's a pretty clear indication that the community will tilt that way, as well as it just being urban. I mean, I'm fascinated. We always talk about this like urban-rural divide. We just see that more so than states actually being divided, Republican or Democrat, we see a divide within one state. And if you're in an urban center, chances are you'll be a Democrat. So there are two stories that I always wind up writing about, one annually, one quadrennially. Uh, one, the annual one is about the history of turkey pardons, and like everyone knows that I do that. But so <laughs> You're obsessed with that. I am kind of obsessed with it. It's kind of awesome. How long was your one? This it was like 1,500 words. It's yeah, well, I, it's, anyway, yes. Sorry. It, I keep digging the string on it. That's one. The other one is the myth of the Catholic swing vote, because it became this thing for a long time where people would talk about how if you look at the Catholic vote in the exit polls, they vote just like everybody else. Well, I mean, it's because they don't vote like Catholics. Like, they vote like people. <laughs> you know, like, they, they actually vote, like, um, being a Democrat or a Republican is a much better indicator of how they'll vote rather than their religion. So there are other religions where they might vote along a doctrine, uh, you know, but there are lots of Catholics who, you know, fall into the JFK uh, you know, social reform class, or do they fall into the more dogmatic, uh, you know, Vatican II, whatever stuff, right? I mean, as, a, as, as somebody who grew up Catholic, I'm very familiar with the two splits. So uh, that's, that's generally, I think, the issue there is a lot of Catholics take what the church tells them and says, eh, that's nice. And they and they and they kind of like move on, right? As a, and it's amazing that we've come that far, given that in 1960 JFK had to give a speech talking about how the Pope wouldn't tell him what to do, right? So, we'll do Michelle because uh, she wants us to read the question for her. She is from Zurich, Switzerland. Wow. Uh, question reads: Do you think that the long do you think that the long duration of the primary elections is beneficial to grassroots candidates? For example, would Bernie have done as well if all the elections would have been within one month? Um, I do think there is an argument that our elections are way too long, too long, and that it's not actually <laughs> good for the country or for democracy. <laughs> Um, I, we, I had to, I spoke to a group of uh, Canadian parliamentarians because that's the kind of fun stuff you get to do when you cover Congress. Um, and they were saying how, you know, Justin Trudeau, who's the prime minister, who's gotten a lot of attention, uh, the Canadian Barack Obama. Somebody whistled. Um, <laughs> but they said, but I thought this was so funny because they said that the Canadian election was like the most divisive, like toward the social fabric of Canada election. And I was like, well, how long? did it go for? And they were like, whew, it was like 120 days. <laughs> and most of their elections are in the 60 to 80 day time period, which I, is why I think a lot of like the international interest in our elections is partly because it goes on too long. But you know, this started last summer. Really, it started, well, no, I, no. I was in Iowa four years ago. And I remember within a month or maybe even less of the 2012 election, Marco Rubio came to Iowa and gave a speech. I mean, really, in a certain sense, 
they last forever. <laughs> it's also it's also why it's also why polling doesn't matter all that much this far out, like I was talking about earlier, because you know, the candidate who led the longest in New Hampshire until Donald Trump led was Scott Walker. Who? Like Scott Scott Walker, oh, I'm sorry, in Iowa, in Iowa, not New Hampshire. Scott Walker led in Iowa longer than any candidate this entire race, right? And he wound up dropping out before there was even a vote there. And Ted Cruz got in the race first. See what that did. And we're still two months from the general election officially being kicked off. <sighs> Wanted to take one more question about the political environment, but we'll just say it's bad and close this up. <laughs> That's the end of our questions. Okay, and because we are almost out of time, that means it is time for Can't Let It Go. When we all share things we just can't stop thinking about in politics or otherwise, we drew straws because we want to move this along, and there are four of us who are going to go. Domenico, you were first. I think they were the short straw. (laughs) Indeed. Um, The thing that I couldn't let go this week, I went down a rabbit hole of Justice Don Willett's uh, Twitter feed. One of Trump's 11. And I will have to explain. He is one of Trump's 11. And I was editing Nina Totenberg's online piece of, you know, explaining who these 11 justices were, what was surprising, what wasn't. And, you know, she mentioned that he's an inveterate tweeter, you know. And I said, what does that mean exactly, right? So I, not inveterate, the whole, like, what is this Twitter? <laughs> so I go and look up, I go and look it up. <laughs> he does it a lot. And he's, I guess, good at it. So anyway, uh, <laughs> He tweets up a storm. It's really funny. You could take out your phone and follow the guy or follow along. But after he was named uh, on this list, he had he. I wish we had visuals on this, but he says uh, he he tweets out the the New Yorkers' hundred best lists of all time, and he says New Yorkers and their lists. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) And. And it's a lot of this stuff. It's like, you know, he tweeted out, the one that got a lot of attention yesterday is, we'll build the Death Star, it'll be amazing, believe me, and the rebels will pay for it. Darth Trump. (laughs) (laughs) When the Trump University stuff was out, he said, low energy Trump University has never made it to March Madness, or even the NIT. Sad. (laughs) Yeah. Tamara, what can you not let go this week? This is kind of something I have not been able to let go of for a while. The 90s. They're, they're back. They actually never left my iPod, but, you know. Uh, so Full House is back on television or YouTube or... Netflix. 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 I heard, it, I heard it's not good. Not it's I heard that too, and so I didn't watch it. I didn't want to destroy the dream. Uh, and, and then, of course, the campaign is completely litigating and relitigating and litigating again everything that happened in the 90s, the Clinton administration, and all the other fun stuff that came along with that. And Donald Trump. Yes, right. He was huge in the 90s. Huge. But the thing that really got me was I was covering a Bernie Sanders rally in New York, so I clearly couldn't let this go, and there were all of these people, grown adults, probably very fashion-forward, wearing overalls, like bib overalls. (laughs) (laughs) I am wearing a jumpsuit right now, just so we're clear. Say it again. Jumpsuit. So I was saying, I'm wearing a jumpsuit. Jumpsuit is like overalls, like part one. But that's yeah. better than overalls. It's so much better. I actually do have overalls at home, too. What? Clear. Well, denim, denim jumpsuit. Yeah, kind Asma the is the most fashion-forward person on this stage, clearly. Uh, so, who's next? Asma. What can you not let go of? Okay, well, I want to share my can't let go with uh, Scott Detrow here. Because uh, this is something that we both have not been able to let go pretty much all week. Um, so I'm sure that you all are familiar with uh, Senator Marco Rubio. 
also former presidential candidate on the Republican side. And um, on Tuesday night, he took to Twitter. And it was a rather late night Twitter session in which he really <laughs> let out all the feels. All the feels. It got a little and, emo. And so Scott and I would like to bring you a dramatic reading of Marco Rubio's <laughs> In case you guys were not super familiar, we should probably clarify that this all started in relation to a Washington Post story that suggests or, or said that Marco Rubio was not on the VP shortlist for Donald Trump. Uh, so that's where it all began. At 10.17 p.m., May 16th. <laughs> Funny to read about unnamed people close to me who claim to know my thinking on future plans. They just make it up. Unnamed sources close to, often just people who want to sound like they're in the know. And reporters desperate for content, just accept it. Flashback to another article quoting a longtime friend saying, I hate Senate, words I have never said to anyone. Word of advice. <laughs> Scott just drank a little bit of water right here, Rubio style. People often claim to know more than they really do because they enjoy the status of being perceived as in the know. Another genius line claims that I'm quote, a bit at sea in terms of his next step politically. Um, not really. <laughs> I've only said like 10,000 times. I will be a private citizen in January. A longtime friend says Rubio is betwixt and between when it comes to whether to chest or legs tomorrow at gym. <laughs> I think we should clarify, these are actually the tweets. We did not make these up. <laughs> a couple more. According to a source who knows his cousin's wife's dentist, Rubio could do cardio instead. Okay, that's enough for one night. Twitter isn't something you should just rush back into. You have to slowly increase the dosage. Da, 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 da. Thin. Did somebody give him the keys back to his Twitter? Where was this guy the whole campaign? <laughs> you lose a lot happened. of staff when you're not running for president anymore. <laughs> He's like the Kanye West of politics. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Sam, what can you not let go of? So I got a surprise for you guys. But first, I got to just quickly say my first can't let it go was going to be a story today that disclosed that during one of the seasons of The Apprentice, Donald Trump was considering having a black versus white season. That's all I'm going to say about that. But my real can't let it go um, yeah. is a present for you all. As you folks know, we have eaten political foods on this show before. We had Hillary's wine ice cream. We had Bernie ice cream. I got us today America beer because I love yeah. y'all. Um, it is from Harris Teeter and Warm, but whatevs. <laughs> Everybody Wait, is that, gets one. Oh, no, is that, is that any it's different? Cold. It's cold. Is that it's any cold. different than what it usually is? We can't like, say the name. We don't endorse products. America, though, e beer. Pluribus oh, unum. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, who wants a beer? Yeah. That's all I got, so thank you, beers. <laughs> I'll take an American beer, please. <laughs> okay. Anything that's sure. like wow. local? That's right. You want an IPA? <laughs> who said they prefer America light? Is that Canada? America Ultra. <laughs> to America? To America. To America. To America. <laughs>
Okay. That is a wrap on this live edition of the NPR Politics Podcast. If you could not be here with us, know that we hope to do more of these in the future. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like the show. Email us at nprpolitics.org. Wait, NPRpolitics <laughs> at npr.org. And as always, catch our coverage on your local public radio station. Usually at the end of the podcast, we say our names, but there's one name we want to mention tonight, and that is Barbara Sprunt, who works on our desk. She produced this event. She is the MVP of life in every way. Big hand for Barbara. Yeah. I also want to thank our podcast colleagues on the desk, Danielle Kurtzleben, Mara Elias, and Carrie Johnson, Don Gagne, the wonderful Nina Totenberg. Um, and also thanks to our fearless editors who are over here, Shirley Henry, Mathani Maturi, and Beth Donovan. We love you guys. Um, and I want to take a second, a really long second, just to say that Anything that you hear that you like in the podcast is usually because of one, Brent Bachman. He's the producer of our show. Um, he is a genius and not just a good friend of mine, but a, an actual stand-up guy who was brilliant. Um, he, he will never, ever take credit for anything, so we'll give it to him now. Thanks, man. We love you. Thanks, Brent. Um, and of course... Thanks to you guys for being here. I still can't believe all y'all showed up. This is amazing. That's it. We'll see you in the lobby to meet and greet and chat. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Please clap. Yeah.